0: Hey, good morning. You survived the earthquakes this weekend. Congratulations. I saw the uh, there's that thing that shows up on Facebook every time we have like a three point something the the, the two two chairs and the, the patio table and there's one chair on the grass and says we will rebuild. Um, so we all made it. Um, I did have a moment. I was leaning back in a chair having dinner with some friends. There's a little aftershock and I had that moment that that one newscaster had and Chris Chavez is his name. Anyway, I that was my moment and I was embarrassed. Um, Hey, want to keep Pastor Dave in prayer? He has shingles. Yes, not the thing on the roof, but something more painful than that. Um, And so he emailed me on Monday this week and and this is what he said, Jewish people should handle Romans 9 anyway, could you preach? So (laughs) here I am. So we're in Romans chapter 9, if you would go there. We're going to hit the whole chapter. We're going to dig deep and have some fun this morning. Um, Pastor Dave, he's, he's in some pain, so we want to keep him in prayer. Uh, I, I think about this, uh, even Tim Nellis, we, we uh, helped him move into his home a couple weeks ago. And there's a reason that men die earlier than women. We're stupid. And we do things that are dangerous. Um, and we were trying to get a couch that was probably 12 feet long. I'm embellishing a little bit. But upstairs, he lives upstairs, and there's like this right angle. And it was, there was just no way it was going in, but we were going to try. And we got it all the way up there, just even getting up the stairs and all of the right angles. It, it was messy. And then we, we decided that wasn't going to work, and we just sit there. And then that is the moment where guys do dumb things. And so we We started looking around, I'm thinking like ropes, pulleys, helicopters, what can we do to get it in? And we realized there's a balcony and there is a U-Haul truck. And so we get the U-Haul truck and we hoist this thing, I'm not real tall. There's a point where I go and like the five guys taller than me, like, well, you know. And, <laughs> true story. And the, we get the couch on top of the U-Haul. We, we bring the U-Haul truck over to the balcony and we lift it up and over and through the slider and we got it in and it just barely um, fits. But we, we do things that are not smart, that at points could leave us uh, dead in the water. If you can't tell right now, we, we have a nautical theme. This is the first time that Romans 9 and a nautical theme have ever been placed together. But I hope that there's a picture here for you today that you understand that the God that we serve, the God that we're going to talk about today, is the God who saves. Um, a while back, there's a boat called the Titanic, a ship, a cruise ship, a huge ship. You know the story. Um, let me remind you, let's just look at a quick clip of... Leonardo DiCaprio's version of what happened. Here it is. (sighs) Stay on it. Stay on, Rose. Hold on just a little bit longer. Then we'll wait for the suction, but now they'll be coming back. For oh, oh, God's sake! Please! Help us! Help us! You don't understand. If we go back, they'll swamp the boat. They'll pull us right down, I'm telling you! Knock it off. You're scaring me. Come on, girls. Grab let's go. Are you out of your mind? We're in the middle of the North Atlantic. Now, do you people want to live or do you want to die? I don't understand no one of you. What's the matter with you? It's your men out there. There's plenty of room for more. And there'll be one less on this boat. If you don't shut that all in your face. All right. Guys, don't say that to women. Now, sometime after I saw that movie, I had a dream. I'm telling the truth. This is the dream. I was on the Titanic. The Titanic is going down. I'm in the water. I'm dead in the water, right? No chance of being saved. I throw up a prayer to God. Lord, please save me. And thunder and lightning and from... The sky falls a huge lifeboat, much bigger than this thing. That's what this is, by the way, if you couldn't, lifeboat. Okay, now, the lifeboat comes down and the voice of God says, I am saving you, get on the lifeboat and take everyone you can with you. Get them on there. So, well, this is awesome. You know, you get over to the boat. I get in. I'm realizing like, wow, this is kind of roomy. It's nice. It's great. I know it's a dream because I'm doing cartwheels and somersaults, which is not actually possible in my real life. And so I'm there. And soon the sounds of the people who were dying in the water, their voices, their screams have kind of faded away. And I kind of forgot about them. This picture for me has been a picture of of my own salvation and the call that a lot of times we in our culture just kind of ignore and put to the side and say, I'm in, I'm saved, I'm good. So there's an outline in the bulletin that you got. And I just want to run through some things this morning, but we're going to get deep in theology. Um, The book of Romans is up until this point, these first eight chapters has been very theological, doctrinal. Um, In chapters 1 through 3, we talk about condemnation, how we are guilty as charged, and that we, in the next few chapters, chapters 3 to 5, have been justified. We are saved. And then chapters 6 to 8 talk about sanctification. How do we grow in our faith? These next few chapters, chapters 9 to 11, they are talking about nationalism, about the identity of the people of Israel. Now, just to make sure that we are all on the same page, in the Bible there are Jewish people, and if you are not a Jewish person, then you are a Gentile. That distinction is important. But we're talking about, over the next couple of weeks, today specifically, how Israel was done with God, and next week we want to talk about how God is not done with Israel that Israel is very much still a part of the plan of God. But in this section right here, we're going to learn what God does. Now, look with me. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says this. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. That first point on there was that we have to abandon this attitude that we have about saving ourselves. We're in the boat. It's okay. Everybody else is out of the boat. I'm good. Paul has this attitude, and you can see it. He has great sorrow, unceasing grief in his heart. He says, I wish that I could be accursed. Send me to hell, separated from Christ, so that my people, the Jewish people, could be saved. Now, I love people. I'm not sure I would go to those, that, that extent. But Paul is passionate about this. Great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart. And then he talks about the Jewish people. His people. Verse 4 who are Israelites, to whom belongs. Here are all the beautiful benefits of the Jewish people. Look what comes from them. To whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers? The patriarchs come from the Jewish people. And from them, whom is the Messiah? Christ, according to the flesh, Who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. The Jewish people have this. They were adopted as God brought them out of Egypt. He said, you are my people. And God's glory, his presence was with them as they went through the wilderness. And he made covenants with them. And he gave them the law, the Torah, that they would be able to do what he has asked them to do. And he said, this is how I want you to worship me. And if you do these things, then there's a promise that you will be called the children of God. Even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came from the Jewish people. And from them, out of their line, Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord over And Paul is saying, my heart is breaking because my people are missing it. Look at everything they have, and they're missing it. See, good genes don't mean a thing when we're treading water. Look at this, verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Listen to that again. This is big, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Quick family tree, see this? Abraham, he's the father of the Jewish people, right? That's why we sing the song, "Father Abraham." We did that while well. anyway. Abraham married to Sarah, gotten patient, right? God said, "I'm going to make a nation out of you." Gotten patient. Had relations with Hagar. Out of that, we have Ishmael, from whom we have the Ishmaelites. That that right there is what started the Arab-Israeli conflict that still exists today. But if you look on the other side, out of this relationship with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac was chosen of God. He married Rebekah. And then Rebekah has twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, look what it says here in the passage. It says, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. They are not all Israel who descended from Israel. They are not all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. It's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise that are regarded as Descendants. What this means is Isaac was chosen by God out of this relationship between Abraham and Sarah. But if we read further, check this out. But there was also Rebecca. When she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born, still in her tummy... And had not done anything good or bad. They haven't even come out. They couldn't even mess up yet. So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Let's go back. I want you to understand this. Abraham, Sarah, they have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And out of Jacob is Israel. The descendants. Esau, it it wasn't that just Abraham and Sarah had this relationship. It wasn't that there was a different mom here for Ishmael. But out of the same woman came two sons. And before they're even born, God has made a choice. In fact, it, it goes through. If you continue to read this, they're not born. The older will serve the younger. And just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Right there in that section, we have quotes from Genesis and quotes from Malachi. The entire Old Testament canon right there shown in the book of Romans. Book of Romans, this is an Old Testament Bible study. I don't need to pull out all kinds of fun cross-references today. They're all here. And so Paul is saying, I want you to pay attention that it had nothing to do with what they did. It has nothing to do with the family they came out of. Because there was this assumption that you're Jewish and you're in. The Jews get a pass, everybody else, sorry. And I think sometimes we look at our family and we think, I come from a great heritage of Christian families, my grandparents. And I talked to a guy in between services, he says, he's like, his whole family, they're like missionaries and pastors and all kinds of great things. But it's not that you are born a Christian, you are reborn a Christian. Your genes, your family does not get you saved. And so people think a lot of times like, well, Jewish people are saved, and that's not true. Now, we're going to enter into this idea of what is God up to? Now, look at this in in verse 14. Reexamining the depths of God's mercy and what God is up to in salvation, he says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God forbid. Is God... Is God unjust? What shall we say? God's not unjust. May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. See, a sovereign God chooses to have mercy and compassion on those that he wants to. We have to understand this because our culture, our mindset is, yes, God is sovereign, but there is not total sovereignty. We soften the sovereignty of God, that God can't just choose and save, that I have to do something for it. It's not for the man who wills or runs, right? Like I, I just will myself into if I want it bad enough or if I run the works that, that I do. I have to somehow earn my way with God, then that's salvation. No. Nope. God chooses. And this doesn't sit right with us. We we have trouble with God having that much sovereignty. And so we soften it sometimes by saying, well, God chooses those who he knew would choose him already. That's, that's not God's sovereignty. This, this whole topic <laughs> is, has been a problem for the last couple hundred years. You see, the Puritans, the guys with the muskets and the dead turkey, they believed that God was sovereign in salvation. Hundreds of years ago. And a couple hundred years ago, a guy named Jacob Arminius, he said, this just doesn't make... How, how can God have all of this power? How can, how can God do everything? So we, we have to have a role in it. That my salvation, I have to step into it. I have to say something. I have to do something so that I can be saved. And so there was a shift a couple hundred years ago from this, this thought of what, what we call Calvinism today to Arminianism And I believe that we've even moved into liberalism where it's just on our rationale and we're just going to think our way in. But this is an old conversation. And I want you to see that as you look at a couple of these passages, for me, I'm just going to tell you what it says in here. Now, last week... Dave shared something from Romans 8, and he said this, God causes all things to work together for good. This idea of working together is this Greek term, synigeo. it's a synergy by God to mix it all together for good, beneficial in all of its effect, that you take the circumstances of your life and, and God can take those things and he can put it together. But I want you to understand that salvation is something different. Salvation is a monergistic act not a synergistic act. Let's define monergism, regeneration, the saving of an individual is the work of God through the Holy Spirit alone. It's all God's synergism. The human will cooperates with God's grace in order to be regenerated. Arminianism. I believe that God does it all. I can't get my head around it, but God does it all. God saves. If it's up to me, then I'm changing the word. Now, when we look at the sovereignty of God, Paul is outlining it again, Old Testament, and he starts with Moses, right? He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It doesn't depend on the man who wills or runs, but on God who has mercy. But then he says to Pharaoh, and this is going to make you really upset. You ready? The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Wait, wait. God hardens people's hearts? Can God do that? He's God. God chooses. And so you look at that and you have to start asking questions. Well, how can he possibly do that? In fact, the next question in verse 19. So you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If God is the one choosing, then how can any of us be guilty? For who resists his will? Verse 20. On the contrary. Have a seat, buddy, because I'm God and I'm about to talk. Who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for common use? See, clay doesn't talk. Clay does whatever the potter does with the clay, it doesn't answer back and say, Why did you make me like this? It's clay. It bothers us. We don't like being clay. We want to be the potter. And so we reduce the sovereignty of God. But he says this. What if God, in verse 22, "...although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction." And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, listen. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He chose Moses, and he didn't choose Pharaoh. In Proverbs 16, it says, All things have their purpose, even the wicked for the day of judgment. Now, this is before some of your time. It's before my time. We had a president, Richard Nixon. Watergate scandal, got in a lot of trouble. He got kicked out, no longer president. The next guy who comes in is Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford does something crazy. He pardons him. He grants him clemency. Richard Nixon was not the only guy that was doing things wrong in the Watergate scandal. Gerald Ford, what they would later say, I read an article that was published when all this was going on and said it was an act of mercy see we we get upset and we say if God is a loving God then why doesn't he let everybody in and that's talking about his justice but that's not the right question it's how can a holy and just God let anybody Sinners into heaven. See, none of us have done anything that should be able to get us in. We should be condemned. It's by his mercy that we are saved. So people write letters and emails, well, not emails at the time, but letters to Gerald Ford. He got a ton of hate mail out of this and. Parties are splitting and everybody's upset. But it's not about... They're not, they're not telling Gerald Ford, Hey, you, how dare you not let everybody off the hook? It's why did you have mercy on that one? The question was asked, If you were God, how populated would heaven be? If you think about it, if you're married, what if... A crew of guys comes into your house, they beat you up, they beat your wife up for six hours, end up killing her. These guys get caught. And now they stand guilty, and you have a choice. What if you say, I want to have mercy on this person? people would say, you are a madman. You can't let that person go free. Okay, wait. I'll take that person in. I will adopt them as my own. They will be with me when I die. All of my inheritance, everything goes to this person. We, we don't say, how come you didn't let everybody off of the hook? We say, you are a madman for letting that one person off. That You showed mercy to the one. When it comes to God, we have a different set of rules, right? Like, God can't show mercy. God has to, like, let everybody in. That is not how it works. But God chooses who he's going to show mercy to, who he's going to have compassion on. And so it says, he did so to make known. God was patient with these vessels that were not honoring him. In fact, it's the patience of God with pain that God is enduring it so that there'll be vessels for glory and honor and God will receive the glory. It says, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Why? Because God is saving a people. It says, even us, whom he also called not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. See, God is saving a remnant. You look at Sodom and Gomorrah and God is patient because he wants to pull lot out. You look at the flood and it takes years and years for Noah to build the ark but God is being patient because he has a salvation plan in mind. You look at why Joshua and the army march around Jericho for as long as he he wanted to save Rahab and from Rahab comes Jesus later on, right? Like God is saving a remnant and Paul is saying not just the Jews but the Gentiles also. Now, To his audience, this is crazy because the Jews are the chosen people. They always have been the chosen people. How can we possibly let the Gentiles in? How can God choose to save them? Well, God does what he wants to do. See, 2,000 years ago, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, the question was, the, the Jewish people were sitting there saying, what do we do with all of these Gentiles that are receiving the Lord. What do we do with these Gentiles who are professing faith in Jesus and they're they're being saved? What do we do with them? 2,000 years later, people find out that I'm Jewish and they say, but you're saved? Everything's been turned backwards. In fact, today in Israel, there's 8 million people there and there's about a 100,000 Jewish believers in the land. That's not much. There's a remnant. God is saving a remnant and he's being patient because... The salvation plan is in order. And so, so Paul quotes a couple people. And this is what I would call the insiders and the outsiders. And we'll get into it a little bit later. But this is, this is what he says in verse 25. Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. Right? The Gentiles. They were not my people, but now they are my people. And her who was not beloved shall be beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, that's a lot, it is the remnant that will be saved. I read that and it's amazing that I stand here, I'm part of that remnant today. The remnant will be saved for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And Isaiah says, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, a seed, a, a remnant. Out of his mercy, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. God is calling back a remnant. This is, this is my burden, is that my Jewish people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that they might be saved. Next week, we're going to be talking about, well, if you're not Jewish, what is your role in all of this? What is God? calling you to do and we need to understand And may, many of you have understood that it is Jesus who is the lifeboat that sets us free look in verse 30 it says this what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness they didn't do anything they're not following all the laws they did not pursue righteousness they attained righteousness Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That stumbling stone is Jesus. I want you to hear this in a different translation. This is from the message. It's okay. Don't get upset. Don't send Pastor Dave emails. He's hurting. He's in a lot of pain but I believe that Peterson gets it right here. I think this is fantastic. It says, how can we sum this up? All of those people who didn't seem interested in what God was doing actually embraced what God was doing as he straightened out their lives. And Israel, who seemed so interested in reading and talking about what God was doing, missed it. How could they miss it? Because instead of trusting God, They took over. They were absorbed in what they themselves were doing. They were so absorbed in their God projects, following the laws, that they didn't notice God right in front of them. Like a huge rock in the middle of the road. And so they stumbled into him and went sprawling. Isaiah, again, gives us this metaphor for pulling this together. Ready? Careful. I've put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion, a stone you can't get around. But the stone is me. If you're looking for me, you'll find me on the way, not in the way. It's poetic. The stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, Jesus Christ, our Savior, when we were dead in the water, we were pulled up. Not because of anything we did, but because of who God is in His mercy and in His justice. See, when we worship sometimes, we don't do it out of a thankful enough heart because we think that we did it. We are... (laughs) man I haven't sinned in like two weeks right or two hours like we're, we're, we feel really good about ourselves when you think about it this way evangelism takes on a whole different flavor because it's not about me trying to get somebody to do something or so that they can be saved but it's just telling the truth and we're going to let God reveal himself and we'll talk in the next couple of weeks about receiving the Lord and what that looks like but God is the one now Last night, I did a Jewish wedding. I had the yarmulke, I had the prayer shawl on, I looked incredibly Jewish. And in the middle of the toast, there's this guy, like a rabbi who comes out and he steals the show and they have these bottle dancers. And then I look at merrily and it's like, it's awesome to be Jewish, right? Like, but today I'm feeling a little bit of a Jewish fun over, like it was too much Jewish for me last night. And I have a pretty high capacity for too much, anyway. Um, But I, I sat there and I watched. There were non-believing Jews there. And we had to be very careful even about how we talk about Jesus. I was talked to beforehand about how we talk about Jesus because I I could talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the Old Testament. We can use Hebrew and there's rules and there's all kinds of we got to do this and step on the glass and right. Like there's all kinds of... But Jesus, that stumbling stone, that rock of offense, be careful with Jesus. And if I put Jesus out there, he's going to be in the way. They're not going to find him on the way. And as I looked at my people just spinning around doing the dancing, totally drunk, and them, not me, um, I, I had this, this pain. It's similar to what, what Paul said in the beginning of chapter 9, but he also says it again in chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for the Jewish people, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. I mean, look at the Jewish people today. How zealous, they are zealous for God but not in accordance with knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law. The law is not an end in itself, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Many of my people don't believe. If anything, um, today, I pray that you, I feel like not everybody here is Jewish. Most of you aren't Jewish. Probably just me and my family. But that you would have a heart for the Jewish people. It feels like everybody has a Jewish friend. That you would have a heart for them. And I also just pray that you would understand that God has saved you. That he has called you out. And you might have to open up your eyes and realize that there is a God who's knocking on your heart saying, come to me. Uh, About two weeks ago, there was an article, a news story about a couple that was moving out of their third story apartment. And as they are carrying down their box spring down to the moving truck, they look up and up on the third story, they see a three-year-old toddler pulling himself up and dangling out of the window three stories up not their child somebody else's but the parents obviously don't know what's going on they run over like a movie with the box spring this took place in burbank with the box spring and catch the three-year-old as he fell three stories caught him just in time with the box spring it's an amazing story What's even more amazing is they said later on as they were interviewed, we are so thankful we were there at the right time and the right place. The funny thing is earlier in the day, we were stuck in an elevator for 30 minutes and we hate to think if we were still stuck in that elevator that that child might not have made it. You have been set free I pray that your heart is that you know that you've been set free for a purpose, that you are called to be light, that you have been grafted in. And we're going to talk about that next week. But That God has brought you in so that you can be light, to tell about the glorious, wonderful maker that we have. We're going to respond in worship this morning. To worship in spirit and truth based on what we have just heard. To thank God for our salvation. And during this time, we want to pray with you. If you want to pray, if you have questions, we have some folks on either side that would love to pray with you. Take communion. Be thankful for what Jesus did as the lifeboat. That stumbling stone. Maybe you found him on the way and not in the way. And so you have been saved and you can also give your offering here at these stations. But God alone is the one who rescues. And God alone is the one who saves. So let's pray. Lord God, we are thankful that we have been set free. We are thankful for your great love for us. I know it's so against us in, in, our, in our minds, in our hearts, that we... We don't have all of the control, but that you are a sovereign God, that you have your elect, that you have called out and picked. So Lord, help us this morning to be faithful, Lord, that we've been saved and we've been saved for a purpose. We were dead in the water and you drew us out. So I pray this morning, God, that we see our salvation differently that you stepped in when we had no hope and you loved us and you called us and you pulled us out. So we lift you up this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.